0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. England are back. Might as well just be handed the trophy after a comfortable 3-1 victory over Scotland. Duke Bellingham's good, isn't he, Barry? See also Phil Foden. And then... There's Harry Maguire, poor guy. When does ripping it out of him cross some kind of line? Or is it just funny? Southgate can't predict how opposition fans will treat anyone but was there anything to gain by putting him on the pitch at a time when Scotland fans had nothing to cheer about? As for the Scots, they had a decent spell, but perhaps a sign of where they are in the pecking order of football ahead of almost certain qualification. Also today, disappointingly, we have to give some airtime to Piers Morgan's vain attempt to hold Luis Rubiales to account. We get a lovely Ellis James voice note for Latvia, a slightly less expected voice note from Tbilisi from Lars, and a revolutionary way to pick players by the Indian manager Igor Stimac. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nikki Bandini, welcome. Morning. Hello, Johnny Lou. Hiya. Hello, Barry Glendening. Hello. Joining us for part one, our Scottish football correspondent Ewan Murray. It's been a while. Hello, mate.
2: It has been a while. So Scotland, win, 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 win and win. And I'm not on here. <laughs> and then, and then they, 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 they tumble against England and here I am. It's no coincidence, Max.
1: <laughs> Suggesting there's an agenda. <laughs> the agenda is real. Uh, Brad says, it's funny that you began Monday's pod talking about how England's matches don't matter very much now because they're going to qualify and then spent about 15 minutes talking about what a disaster it all is. As a Toronto Maple Leafs ice hockey fan, I really relate to this. Um, you, and you were there, uh,
2: how was it? I thought England were very good. They were they were buying at it. Um, they took the game seriously. Played certainly in the first half they played exceptionally well. Scotland were short of where they would need to be against a team playing like that and that triggered the outcome as transpired. So a good night for Southgate and England. I think all round Bellingham was absolutely outstanding I thought but he wasn't the only one. England had a few exceptional performances um, and I think it was a even by the scale of Southgate's celebrations it felt like a big night for him and for England and Scotland got a Probably not. Never a bad thing, they're, you know. A wake up call to to show them that they're still short of that kind of level of um, of elite football. Uh,
1: you mentioned Jude Bellingham. P "How can we convince Mister and Missus Bellingham to have more children?" Uh, David, in what year is Jude Bellingham winning his first Ballon d'Or? Look, Barry, he was in the right position, and he was really good.
3: Yeah, he was the standout player on the pitch, um, and you know, obviously, everything has to be decided on. A knee-jerk reaction. You would suggest that if fit, he has made that position his own. And if Gareth Southgate's going to start with, you know, two sitting midfielders, then the the positions either side of of Bellingham are, you know, there's there's a lot of very good players vying for those. And I would su- suggest, on the evidence of his performance last night and his general excellence, that Phil Foden would be a shoe in for one of them. Also, you know, if he's fit, but Bellingham was just outstanding. His vision, his nimbleness with the ball at his feet, his—he's uh, got clearly got a great football brain. He's mobile. He can pick a pass, and on his day, uh, there, there probably aren't too many players better than him on the planet, which is, seems remarkable considering he's only twenty years of age and I hope his brother Joe, but Sunderland uh, is is half the player. He's <laughs> he's already shaping up to be a decent or an excellent signing for, for Sunderland. Foden and Bellingham were almost unplayable last night. Rashford was good too. Harry Kane took his goal well and it it was an excellent performance from England in a game that was far more High tempo than I expected it to be. If I'm honest,
1: mm. it's interesting, Johnny, that Barry talks about. You know, Foden now has to play. I'm not saying you're saying that, Barry, but sort of the way it works is if you have a good game, you have to play. Well,
3: well, I I would have thought Foden should be an automatic selection all the time if if he's available. But I guess,
1: Johnny, if Foden, Foden and Saka are playing for one role, if you play players where they play, Foden and Saka are there for one position. Rashford and Grealish are there for another. Kane will play. Bellingham will play. With Madison as an understudy, even though he played on the wing, and Rice will play, and then you need another holding midfielder, who's probably
4: Calvin Phillips. Yeah, I, I actually think Foden and Rashford uh, are, are more, you know, they're, they're more competing for that for that left wing spot because Foden seems to play more on the left for for Manchester City than, than he does. I, I think it's where Southgate sees his his best position as well. So I, I think Foden and Rashford, because I, I think if Saka is is fit and and he is available. I think Saka's pretty much a lock in that team. He is—he's—he's is, um, one of those players who, who is, is essentially—he's he's a kind of unicorn player. You can't—you can't really replace him. Greenish, I don't—I don't really like. And, and and we saw last night when you know with Bellingham kind of ripping it up, and you know, you, I think we've all played in these football games where about five or ten minutes in, there's this there's this one bloke, and you, you, you all sort of you know look around at each other and like this guy. Is going to kill us, and there's nothing we can do about it. And you know, you, you can't really, you can't really defend against him. You know, he's a, um, you can't really go close into him because he he, he turns on, on such a, a tight circle. Um, but you can't you can't stand off him either because he's you know he, he can pick a pass. Uh, you can't man mark him because he he kind of roams all over the place. And the key is having quick players around him. Because the only way you can defend a player like Bellingham is, is is as a team. And if you have Grealish on the left, you kind of, you know, as brilliant a player as Grealish is, he's kind of static as well. You know, we've seen with City, he, he, he's not really taking on players so much. Uh, he's not as much of a goal scoring threat. He's not as much of a threat sort of bursting around the outside uh, and, and shooting. He almost invariably passes it inside. Whereas Rashford has that threat round the outside he has that pace he has that pace in behind as well which grealish doesn't have uh and the same with, with with foden who can who can take a defender on on both sides inside and outside so i think that that's the key because you need players around bellingham who are going to stretch the pitch and, and really sort of work defenses around and when you know when those three are kind of passing it around those little one touch moves around the edge of the penalty area yeah, it, it is hard to see how you defend against um, against a, a, a set-up like that. And that's the template that I think England have to have to really go go with going forward. Ewan, what did you make of Harry Maguire
1: coming on and basically giving Scotland fans something to do, which was to just sort of tease the man, basically?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I was saying on that was, I was in a post-match press conference where Gareth Southgate launched an impassioned defence of, of Harry Maguire. He, he said, the treatment that this guy received is—he called it a joke. He called it ridiculous, not from the Scotland fans, it? and Southgate stressed that he said, "I've got no problem with Scotland fans and what they did." He said, "But you know, this—he basically said this is a scenario that has been created by commentators and pundits where this guy is being ridiculed everywhere he goes." And and the the passion with with which Southgate spoke about this was was quite striking. And you know, someone said that to him. You know, you 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 feel strongly about this. He said, he said, he said yeah, I do. And, and I, it struck me actually, as very good management. He defended his player so strongly. Now you could argue it's it's bad management that he puts him on the pitch where he, he's clearly struggling a bit, and he, he scores an own goal. But at that point, England were so much in command of the game that that Gareth Southgate could reasonably think you know, putting on Harry Maguire is not going to change the outcome. And it didn't change the outcome. But but it was, it was the post-match comments on how vehemently he defended Southgate, Ed defended Maguire, and all that's happened around him that was, you know, it, it took me aback how, how, how strongly he, he seems to feel about this. And, and I, I'll i be honest, I haven't paid enough attention to it to, to know whether Southgate has a point and whether this has all been over the top and out of order. But it, it's rarely... In the modern age, you see a manager who goes so far out to to defend a player. I don't know, but do you guys, has he been? Has it been over the top the way this guy has been portrayed? I, I don't know if Southgate has a point or not, but he was—he he clearly feels so so strongly about this. I don't know.
1: He feels. I don't know what you think, Nicky. He feels. You know, he's the latest Man United meme, isn't he? Like after Phil Jones, and and I, and and there's a sort of feels like there's a there's a tipping point. I don't know like you sort of i actually found it funny that the scotland fans are just cheering him doing very rudimentary football-based things just passing it to whoever was next to him but when he scored that own goal i did go oh mate that's not that can't have happened you can't be serious
5: yeah i suppose in my head there's there's different ways of protecting someone aren't there there's protecting someone by sort of being out front and speaking publicly and saying i'm you know with this guy and and continuing to pick them as a way of say of sort of proving that point but i I wonder if Harry Maguire almost at this point does need the opposite kind of protection, which is taking him out for a little bit so that he's not getting that. Because I think whether or not whether or not it's about Harry Maguire as a player, I think exactly as you said, Max, when you're the focus of that much fan attention, when you're getting that much sort of additional um, pressure in effect from, from just knowing that the other people, even the opposing fans are, are sort of sending you up in that way, I, I think it can't be a good spot for him in terms of of his mentals, as we talk about in football. I think it can't be it can't be doing him good to be knowing that he's become this sort of lightning rod and this sort of figure of of, of ridicule, because there is obviously a good footballer. You don't end up at Manchester United in the first place if you aren't. But he has made high profile mistakes, and this was another one. Yeah, Johnny. I mean, I guess there's
1: this kind of I don't know if it is a fine balance between taking the piss out of players. And a player's mental health and it, and it sort of ends. It, it What happens is it's kind of fine until the player himself says, Actually, I'm having a really bad time, and then everyone looks back and goes, Oh, we shouldn't have done that. And then life carries on, and we take the piss out of other footballers because
4: when footballers make mistakes, it's kind of funny in a non personal way, I guess. Yeah, and these things are part of the same, you know, it, it feels a bit like a vicious cycle now, and it almost doesn't matter whether. Harry Maguire is getting ridiculed because he played badly, or Harry Maguire is playing badly because he he he's been getting unfairly ridiculed. Because it, it's become part of this snowball effect, that the only way to out of it is really to to break the cycle somehow. I mean, I he really should have left Manchester United during the summer. I thought there's no earthly reason why he sh- you know he, he should still be playing central defence for England. It felt like a a really cruel a cruel twist of fate that he scored that own goal. But if you know if he's you have a defender who can sort his feet out quicker, who can get into a better position, who can get across quickly enough to clear a, the cross with his with his right foot, rather than trying to to tap it away with his left. Then you know, you know, that end up in that position. So at, at a footballing level, he's you know he's clearly being exposed, and that is just feeding into the the cycle of ridicule and and outrage, and and then Southgate coming in and 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 feeling like he has to go all in on on defending him, which I found. Fine, you know he's your player. You know you've you've staked a large part of your managerial identity almost on this guy. But it's, it's interesting, you know, when Southgate is, is asked about, you know, England get get you know get, they get racially abused in, a, in in an away fixture. Well, you know, there's both sides. You know, there's two sides to it. We need to look at ourselves. You know, uh, what about you know Jordan Henderson in Saudi Arabia? Well, you know, it's a complicated issue. Like, what about what about Harry? What well, this this is this is a line in the sand, and I will not stand for it. I found that very interesting. Um, and it's it's obviously great that he's standing up for his player, but um, I feel like we're also this is kind of a side point, but we're getting into the the kind of the late Southgate era where he's getting cranky and defensive, and siege mentality, and is is basically seeing enemies anywhere, and that is that is never a good place for a managerial reign to to end up in.
3: Yeah, Maguire finds himself in this weird position where he's playing football for two different managers, one of whom doesn't rate him at all, and the other rates him far too highly. I think. And I couldn't agree more with Johnny. He definitely should have gone, left Manchester United during the summer, tried to rebuild his career at West Ham, where I think he would have probably been really good. And I don't know what was that decision based entirely on on uh, money or some other reason. He can't genuinely think that he he'll be able to force his way back into Erik Ten Hag's plans unless there's you know a serious injury crisis at Manchester United.
1: I mean, there is a serious season, and he's still not quite, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> get, getting back in. And it's, I mean, interestingly as well, like Mark Gay played well, Lewis Dunk actually played really well yesterday, and then Tamori has yet to really get a look in, Nicky. And I wonder if you're surprised about that.
5: I think with Tamori, it's, it's kind of an interesting case because his best football he played at Milan so far was in his first season at Milan. The first season he was at Milan, I think it's a travesty. He didn't get an opportunity with England. I think he was playing really, really well. He was thrust into this leadership role when Simon Kiara got injured and he had Kalulu coming in alongside him at centre-back and and he rose to it and he was brilliant. But it was interesting because I remember talking to Stefano Pioli, who's the Milan manager, at the start of 2022 and he said that the one thing he'd like to see more from Tomori is for him to be just like a fraction more patient. He said, Tomori's is so much quicker than the average defender. He can afford to take an extra fraction of a second before making his decision to commit to something. And if anything, I think in the last year, tomori has got worse at that. I see him jump on plays, trying to anticipate something and getting it wrong and finding himself out of position. And and he hasn't had last season such a, a clearly strong season. It was an up and down season. And there were a few moments where he was getting caught out for exactly what Pioli had identified in him. Um, this season obviously then he just started he did get sent off against Roma in, in the third game so on the one hand I think the case for for giving to Mari his his moment is less strong than it was like I say a year and a half ago maybe but at the same time do I think he deserves a chance if Maguire's getting a chance yeah why not why shouldn't he
1: You went from a Scottish perspective I mean it's nothing to be disheartened about you know winning in Cyprus was much more important than this they had that little spell so when Ryan Christie came on they they sort of took it to England for a bit and the atmosphere got great and, and that sort of, in a way, led to the, the goal. But it's fine, isn't it? They know where they are in the in the general hierarchy of football.
2: I think so. And, and Steve Clark is very keen on never getting too high, never getting too low. Man after well, your own he, heart, he, Ewan, I would say. Yes, very much so. Well, certainly, <laughs> certainly never getting too high. No, but I, I think in the grand scheme of things, of course, Steve Clark doesn't want the team to lose. He, he won't. Enjoy defeat, but I think he maybe won't mind that reminder that this is where we are in, in big picture terms. Um, I think possibly in hindsight, he, he he played played the same team that, that played in, on, in Cyprus on uh, Friday, where it was baking hot, where they dominated the ball. I think in hindsight, he should maybe have changed a couple of players. Christie is one of them actually who I would have played to maybe get to England early on, run at England. He didn't do it. I think the, the, the key was, was winning in Cyprus. The key is qualifying for the Euros, which I'm still very confident they will do, and I just I, I said at the start I thought England were very very good in the game, and when they were at that level, it's very difficult for Scotland to to cope with them. Never mind the Scotland; they probably played at sixty seventy percent. They weren't they weren't quite at it. So, yeah, no need for despondency yet. Yeah,
1: and um, you wrote a really good piece on the the quality of the Scottish national team, absolutely not reflecting the quality in the SPL recently, because you know, i've someone who doesn't really follow it might think, oh, well, Scottish football, Scotland a good, Scottish football is currently great.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a dangerous assertion. And I think when things are going so well for the national team, which is now, I think that's the time where people should look at the league and say, right, what, what, what can we do better? What more can we do? I think the standard is poor. I think the number of Scottish players in the league, and I know this is um, replicated elsewhere, other countries, Belgium's a good example. You know, the best Belgian players don't don't play in Belgium, but I think the Scottish Premiership and clubs within it have to do more to promote and develop Scottish players. And and, and bluntly, I, I don't think they're interested. I, th- I think um, winning trumps all in that domestic environment, and I, and I don't think it helps um, Scottish players. So, as you know, I'm I'm Steve Clark's biggest fan. I think the national team has done wonderfully well under him, but I think there's a bigger picture in terms of Scottish football that isn't altogether rosy. And I think that now is probably the time to look at that when the national team is succeeding because inevitably Steve Clark will leave or things will change and the national team will struggle. And that's the point where people will say, well, you know, what's going on here? And I, and I think you, you, know, you should look at it when, when things are going so well for the international side. Johnny, how
1: does this end for England? I mean, you can sort of see, you know, I think you're absolutely right about cranky Southgate. It's something we haven't really seen before. Like, he's always been very measured. Can you see him? You know, England could win the Euros and then he could really go off in a blaze of glory and a kind of fuck you all. I've done this, you know, Harry Maguire on his shoulder sets fire to Wembley. And you see the real, finally, we see the real Southgate. I'm not a suit anymore. And that's it. Gets in a Harley-Davidson and we never see him again.
2: Well, I was going to say, they should win the Euros. Never mind, could they, they should win the Euros.
4: Yeah, but I mean, it is England. <laughs> I don't think they should win the Euros. I mean, they're, they're obviously one of, the, one of the teams that can win it. But, you know, France, Spain, Italy, I mean...
5: Italy have to qualify first.
4: <laughs> Italy have to qualify first. I mean, Portugal. I mean, Portugal are very good at the moment. Um, yeah, we are... Is, is there anybody... Anybody who wants Southgate still to be manager of, of England, including Southgate himself, it's it's such a, I don't know, it's, it seems like such a joyless cycle. This was always the danger after in staying after Qatar. I, everyone would say, oh, well, he must stay, he must stay because you know he's done such a great job. You know the, the, the lads love him, but the, the danger was that we'd, we'd end up in this kind of this you know this kind of late Southgate stage where you you are essentially everyone knows this this, this cycle is going to end. And everyone sort of slightly well. Southgate's clearly positioning himself for his next job, which I reckon might be in Saudi. You know, you, you read the runes. You know, the, the sort of the slight ambivalence over. He, he goes over to Al itihad or somewhere and, and so, immediately signs Maguire, Pickford, Ashley Young, uh, Eric Dyer. Uh, you know, and, and he, cre- he recreates his team of champions out in the um, out in the Gulf. That, but, but you know, that seems like he, he's he seems like a guy who's beginning to pivot away from. From England, he, he, this is his one last mission, his one last task. He's going to try and uh, he's going to try and focus everything on, on on winning the Euros and then and then leaving in a blaze of glory. That's clearly the end game here, and you know it may well it may well work out like that. But I I just I can't see it. I can't. I don't think England have the the all round depth to to win a major tournament. I mean they have. Kind of two okay goalkeepers, they have massive holes in in defense, they still have a, a bit of a puzzle in midfield. Um, and then of course, they have the you know the, this wealth of options up front, which is what everyone looks at when, when well, you know, this is the greatest generation of players that England have ever had. You know, we, we should be absolutely destroying everyone, everyone should be, you know, should, should be kneeling at our feet. But actually, if you look further back, England are not an elite side.
5: But Johnny, Johnny, which of those things weren't true? When England went to the final of the last Euros, and this is before you have Jude Bellingham in the mix as well.
4: Well, yeah, they, they, they've overperformed. They've, they've performed very well. And Southgate has done an incredibly good job uh, of, of getting them to World Cup semi-final. They've seen with a poor squad. You know, final of the Euros with a, a pretty decent squad, and I think he kind of he, it was about a par performance in, in Qatar. But you know, it's clearly we're, we're coming to the end now. It's seven years. It's, it's a long time to to have the same guy in this job. We, you know, they need some kind of fresh. Some fresh messages, some fresh players, some fresh tactics, and 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 hope almost. That's um that's what I don't think we're going to get in this cycle.
5: I think I agree that this is about the freshness needed. I disagree that this idea of the squad depth. I mean. It's sort of, to say it that way, mythologizes the other teams in Europe. Like, oh, of course, these teams are all flawless when they're not. I mean, Spain haven't even won all of their, their um, qualifying group games. These other the teams that England are up against are not perfect squads with, with two players for every position. I think, that's, I think that's false.
4: I mean, there's one perfect squad in France and, and the rest are sort of, you know, kind of, that they all have, have gaps to fill. That's why I think England should win the Euros.
2: I think all these other countries, I do agree, France aside, I mean, even Scotland beat Spain. I, I think all these teams have issues that England don't apparently have. I, th- I think the England squad, and, I, and I'm not a huge Southgate fan, but I think the England squad and team is massively strong.
1: You and before we end part one, uh, I don't know if we'll speak to you before the Ryder Cup. Um, can Europe win that? I really love. I really love the Ryder Cup.
2: Yes, I, I think they will win that. Actually, I mean the US haven't won in Europe since 1993, and the Ryder Cup is. Um, is massively home team based the way really. the home team generally wins. So,
1: have we got any? And we haven't got no live players, have we? Or have we let? What's happened with? The, are they in or not in?
2: We we don't have any, no. Ah, but Brooks played right,
1: for the, the US yeah. Too. yeah. Right. Okay. Even. Okay. Good. Come on, Europe. Yeah, Barry, you're sort of looking mockingly at me. Do you not love the Ryder Cup?
3: <laughs> I I watch it, but I, you know. Luke isn't Luke Donald as the European captain, and then he's got what is it, twenty-seven vice captains? Because you need a lot of vice captains just just to send twelve golfers out to play in a particular order. But he picked Shane Lowry, the awfully man. Um I, I'm not sure that was a great idea. Hopefully, Shane'll prove me wrong. Yeah, I find I find all the the golf itself I like watching. And uh, the rest of it, Christ, it's just sick-making.
2: I actually agree. We've had a thing this week where the European team went to Rome on a, you know, basically a scouting trip, and and it's forensically analysed and detailed. And I agree with Barry. It's twelve plus twelve of the best golfers in the world. It shouldn't be that complicated. It shouldn't need all this work and preparation and detail and analysis. I think that's become a little bit. Out of hand, actually. Tom, Thomas
3: Bjorn once had a pop at me on Twitter <laughs> for making the point that,
2: that the Ryder
3: Cup was, you know, have, is there really any need for all these vice-captains and, you know, support staff? Just one bloke to pick 12 names out
2: of a hat. Uh, that, you know, off you go, lads. But what would I know? Thomas is not a man to fall out with. That's all I would say, Barry. Watch, watch your back. <laughs>
1: oh grummy i amazing if Thomas if Barry was murdered by Thomas Bjorn with a seven iron <laughs> what that would do that would get some
3: that, that would be it. quite the, the, the scandy uh word wouldn't it scandy scandy noir uh, what do you call it? Exactly. detective drama like that. the killing
1: yeah. series four. Thomas Bjorn like a blood soaked Thomas Bjorn hacking at Barry Glendenning and anyone that stands in his way anyway we must end part one uh you and you can go now thanks for coming on mate right take care Uh, That'll do for part one. Uh, Part two will begin with Italy's win over Ukraine. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, John says, could the next live show halftime spectacular be Philippe taking on a hotel buffet breakfast, the natural sequel to Steve Claridge and the Bowl of Fruit? Um, uh, Today's panel, of course, first on the team sheet, uh, Nikki and Johnny who are going to be with us in Brighton, the last show, the finale on the 22nd. Benji says, keeping in mind that we're coming to see Football Weekly live in Brighton straight after Baz and Max have done two nights in Dublin, will we be watching two (laughs) dehydrated, (laughs) incoherent husks alongside the heavy lifting of Lou and Bandini? And I will be on fine form. About 20 tickets left for Brighton. It's going to be live streamed around the world. So, uh, yeah, wherever you are, come and watch that. Ireland's now totally sold out, as is Bristol. Uh, tickets still available in London on the 13th of November with Ellis, Troy and Philippe and me and Barry. And on the 15th of November with me, Barry, John Bruin and Nader Manuaha. If you want tickets, go to theguardian.com slash tour 23 Link is in the description as well on the website. Uh, Italy 2, Ukraine 1. Um, this was arguably a much bigger game than the Scotland-England game and a, and a massive win for Italy.
5: Yeah, they needed it. I was watching on uh, the Italian coverage on Rye and... Uh they called it uno um, per per evitare gli spareggi which means a playoff to avoid the playoffs and it felt like that if Italy had, had lost this game they they would have been really behind the eight ball in in group C having already uh, obviously lost to England they drew just a few days before away to North Macedonia if they'd lost this game you would have been Ukraine on 10 points already and Italy back on four so losing it was was out of the question but even drawing it would have put them in a tough spot so really huge and important game to win at San Siro, and they did. Um, mostly, well, not mostly, I, w- I would say it was quite firmly deserved, but at the same time, it was a go 2-0 up, concede a goal before halftime and never quite get that third goal that would have put things um, into a safe spot. So there was a little bit of nervousness right to the end.
1: Uh, two goals for David Fratesi, who I may never have heard of before <laughs> he scored these two goals. Who is this man has he's as he got like a hundred caps and eighty goals?
5: Not at all, not at all. It's it's Davide Fratesi. Davide. No, not at all. Um, but I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about him. He he moved from Sassuolo to Inter this year. He had a really good season at Inter. Sorry, at Sassuolo last season, scored seven goals for them. He hasn't started yet for Inter. I think he's come off the bench in all three games, and he didn't start or indeed play at all in the game. That was drawn against North Macedonia just a few days before. And I think it's going to be one of the really interesting components of this. A lot of people in England might not follow what's happened with the Italian national team in the last month. Roberto Mancini, of course, who English fans will know from the Premier League and Manchester City, but who also managed Italy to win the Euros in the last cycle, he resigned, giving um, the Italian Federation about 20 days to prepare for that North Macedonia game, in which they hire Spalletti. And he's thrown straight into this qualifying group where the situation is is very sort of in the balance. And his first game in charge was a North Macedonia game, which they drew. And in that game, his mid- starting midfield was Nicola Barella, the Inter player, who is the one consistent across both two games. But the other two were Brian Cristante and Sandro Tonali, of course, the Newcastle midfielder. Um, in this game, Cristanti and Tonali both came out and Fratesi came in together with Manuel Locatelli, the Juventus midfielder. And the balance of the midfield looked much, much better. Fratesi was really impactful, not just with with the goals, but Spalletti plays this 4-3-3 and he likes to have box-to-box running from his midfielders. He likes to get on top of teams with that press early in the game, and he did in this game. And both of Fratesi's goals were very much opportunistic. The first comes from uh, a mistake by the the right-back, which... The ball's worked to Flatesi very quickly, He takes a shot first time into the bottom corner, the second one comes off a deflection. So he is a goal scoring midfielder, he is a line breaking midfielder, he is someone who will make those will will get those opportunities, punishing mistakes and and, and convert them. But no, he's he's very much someone who inter are excited about, but we haven't seen much at club level yet this season. And throwing him into this game, this critical game, given that he hasn't started yet for into the season, was was a gamble by Spalletti but it was one that was was really rewarded
1: so they're in a good position now they've still got to go to England though and Ukraine don't have to so I guess it's is it's in Italy's
5: hands is it so Italy have a game in hand Italy Ukraine North Macedonia all on seven points the the thing that as you just said Ukraine have in their favour is they played England twice so of those remaining five games they don't have to play the best team in the group again um and Italy have the return game against Ukraine, which is in Ukraine. So, those two things work in Ukraine's favour, or oh,
1: oh, probably in Poland. Yeah, you know. of course. Sorry, I, probably, of yeah. course.
5: Um, those two things work in in Ukraine's favour. Um, but on the other hand, head to head is used to decide tiebreakers. Italy do have that extra game in case they get anything out of out of England. It's it's in Italy's control again. Is the biggest thing I think if they had lost this game, it would have been that feeling of this is spiralling out of our control. We no longer um, have a possession of our own destiny. And as I was just saying, these two games felt really perilous because Spalletti had only been in charge for twenty days. He'd come in in the middle of a qualifying campaign that wasn't that hadn't started brilliantly and been told fix it. And yes, he's just won the league with Napoli. He's a brilliant manager, but that's asking a lot especially of a national team manager where you don't have the time to, to work with your players and get to know them, to, to come up with solutions right away. Italy still have lots of problems. They haven't got a, a, a clear choice up front at number nine. Chiro Immobile scored in the game against North Macedonia, but no one really believes in him as the, the, the team's number nine. They started with Raspadori Um, in this match. And again, you're talking about a player who doesn't start at club level. Raspadori doesn't start for Napoli because Victor Ossiman's there. But the team looked much better because he plays more like a false nine. He vacates the area and he created the space for those midfielders like Fratesi to get into. So there's still a lot of questions, but at least now Spalletti has an okay platform on which to go away and start making proper plans.
1: Yeah, I mean, not qualifying for two consecutive tournaments would be...
5: Well, it would be three out of four, with one one in between, you know, winning the whole yeah. thing in between, with yeah.
1: Winning one, yeah. I mean that is Winning one is quite good, sort of <laughs> thinking about it. Um, the Paul Pogba story is a massive story out of Italy, isn't it? He's been provisionally suspended from playing after a drugs test found elevated levels of testosterone in his system. Uh, Italy's national anti-doping... Tribunal said Pogba was tested after Juve's 3 win at Udinese on the 20th of August. Uh, his agent, Raffaella Pimenta, said she was awaiting the second sample and cannot have an opinion before the results. Uh, what is certain is that Paul Pogba never wanted to break a rule. What's the reaction been in Italy, Nikki?
5: Yeah, I mean, of course, everyone is is very much in this sort of wait-and-see phase, exactly as you've just said, Max. Uh, players have three days to request um the B sample to be tested. And then I think it's seven days, um, up to seven days it takes for that, the results to be returned from that. So we're waiting on the result of that second sample. I think there's a a, a mix in, in Italy of sort of, um, I think there's some part of the reaction has felt like it's almost this grim sense of inevitability that the Pogba story isn't going to end well. Obviously he came back to Juventus a year ago and there was quite a lot of excitement when he came back about, this sort of pog back moment, and everyone remembering what a brilliant player he was at Juventus. And I do think some people have forgotten quite what a brilliant player he was in that first year at Juventus under Antonio Conte, and this being the spot where he could reclaim everything that he was. But the steady sort of never-ending uh, injury issues, uh, coupled with, I suppose, the various horrors he's gone through off the pitch, which. Things that nobody should have to go through, like being kidnapped and 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 threatened, and and all of these things. That there was just this sort of, I don't know, inevitable move towards a a, a not great conclusion. There's another part to the reaction in Italy, which is, look, Juventus, having made that investment in bringing him back a year ago, have not been getting what they wanted from that investment. They had been trying to negotiate to reduce his wages already, and there are some people looking around and going, well if if and let's reinforce that if because we're waiting for the b sample but if this ends in a suspension for the player if it ends with a, a a guilty verdict for um for doping that allows the club under the terms of the collective bargaining agreement between um players and the league it allows the club to unilaterally cut his pay packet so there's a part of the reaction which is well, wouldn't this be actually quite convenient for Juventus if if it happens, given that he's not playing anyway. So I think there's a lot of wait and see still, but that those are two sort of aspects of of how this could play out. Also, the other sort of story that's been cited a lot in Italy is uh, the case of Palladino at um, Atalanta, who was suspended for failing a, a drugs test, and then in the appeals process four months later had that overturned and, and is now back playing for Atalanta so there's still lots of outcomes on the table um at the moment I would say
1: Nicky's right if you if you just go and watch I mean look lots of footballers highlights reels are good but his highlights reel at Juventus before he went to Manchester United is absolutely incredible and he's you know he's 30 and he sort of it, it just shows you like how you can be brilliant for a while and then your career doesn't go on perhaps how it should for for lots of different reasons Uh, let's go back to the uh, um, qualifiers and to Latvia Latvia nil Wales 2 Ellis James sent us a a lovely voice note I don't know if any of you have listened to it where he his hello max I think he uh, when I first heard it I thought he is absolutely shit faced and then actually he he appears to be more sober I was sort of slightly disappointed because he actually in this voice note will give some actually good analysis of the game Uh, so here it is
0: Hello, Max. I am outside. Uh, I don't know where I am. I'm in Latvia, uh, and I'm about to go to a bar called Sound Factory. Um, We won 2-0. My God, this team needed a win. Uh, We won 2-0 away from home um, and kept a clean sheet, which is extraordinarily rare. I was talking to the the friends of mine who I'm out with. My friend has done 29 Wales away, whales aways and has seen us win four times, which is a win ratio percentage-wise. I don't even want to work that out. But anyway, we won 2-0. I thought we looked very bright in the first half. Also, uh, Jordan James, who is still incredibly young, obviously, and plays for Birmingham City, seems to be filling a an, an enormous Joe Allen-shaped hole in our midfield which I think could be really, really significant. I talked to Oshan Roberts, who was our assistant manager, and uh, Coleman and Guy Speed, obviously, as I was our assistant manager when we got to Euro 2016. And he, he could not speak highly enough about Joe Allen. Like, Joe Allen is a big miss for us. And so Jordan James, not that you want to put an enormous amount of pressure on him. He did seem to settle us down in midfield, which I think is, is is really, really important. We scored two goals. That's fantastic. I just think that I was listening to Radio Wales on, um, on Saturday and Nathan Blake said, this team just needs to win and it needs to get a bit of confidence. And if we are to qualify for the 2024, it's almost certainly going to be through the playoffs. I would be absolutely stunned if we do it, you know, by finishing in the top two in this group. But we've done it. We needed to win away from home. And I think and obviously we did that, so it's great. We've now got, you know, Armenia away, Turkey at home and Croatia at home. Um it's eased the pressure a little bit on Rob Page. Um and I think a lot of our fans have made their minds up about him. But he did what he needed to do. Uh I thought Ramsey, especially in the first half, was very good. Oh my god, it's just uh <laughs> That's all he wants us to win. I don't really care how we win. I just want us to win. But I thought today looked a little bit more positive. Uh, can I just say, I've always admired your work and I think you're very nice.
1: Uh, thank you, Alice. It also finished with a compliment, I think, for me. And uh, I, I don't usually get them, so I, I appreciate it. You're
3: my best face, Max. <laughs> it was along those lines. I've I've done the maths, by the way, and uh, or the math, and uh, just... He can let his friend know that he's, uh, on his travels following Wales, he's seen them win 13.79% of their games. Ah, excellent. Uh, Well, it was
1: not totally convincing, but a win is a win. Great to see David Brooks uh, scoring um, as it was to see him scoring in the Premier League. Um, uh, Ben Fisher was also at this game, and he has an amazing story about it, uh, uh, which will be debuted at the Bristol live show for those of you lucky enough uh, to have a ticket. Right. That'll do for part two. Uh, Part 3 I'll begin with uh, that Luis Rubiales interview he did with Piers Morgan, which was uh, broadcast last night. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, So Luis Rubiales uh, interview, we'd seen some clips of it, but the whole interview was broadcast, uh, his chat with Piers Morgan. Um, what did you make of it, Barry?
3: Well, I, I thought it was simultaneously remarkable and also thoroughly predictable. It's quite telling, I suppose, that Luis Rubiales has been in the news for in Spain for weeks, but he's given the interview to a, a British journalist on British TV, at times speaking English himself, at times with the help of an interpreter or translator, and... Uh, I mean, he got a very easy ride from Piers, which is no great surprise because Piers Morgan has... We know what Piers Morgan is like. In the past, he's called women who participated in a, a march on Washington after Trump's inauguration. You he, he refer to them as rabid feminists. So, you know, Lewis was always going to get a fairly easy ride from Piers and that's ultimately what happened. They They focused entirely on the manner in which he kissed Jenny Hermosa, but they didn't put it in there was no effort to put it in any sort of context. So people watching the show and I think Piers Morgan has a pretty pitiful uh viewing figures, but those who were watching who weren't familiar with the story will have no idea of the background of um all the of the players the fifteen players who who stepped down from duty from the spanish national team because they couldn't play bear playing for rubiales his mate you know the manager who he he kept in employment and you know if you're not giving people anything close to the whole story uh then what is the point of doing the
4: interview it was hopeless didn't understand why this thing needed to happen did we need this do we need to hear more Luis Rubiales. I think that's the whole problem is that we've been hearing too much from Luis Rubiales. That you know, should we not be platforming some of these rabid feminists who you know, who he's been employing for the last you know few years? Uh the whole problem comes when you know powerful men get get the platform to say whatever they want in front of other powerful men, or, or in this, you know, in this case, a large suckling pig with a with an apple in its mouth. Uh and and on on some minor cable TV channel, uh, I, I, you know, nobody needed this. Uh, and I think it, it, it's got um, I, I, we shouldn't really be showering this with any more attention than it than it needs to be showered with. To be honest, I think uh, it's a bit of a grotesque spectacle. Uh, I, I won't be watching it, and I, I would I would advise you not to either.
5: I, I don't have I don't have much to add to what those two just said because they've said it. Um... I I think I'd be angry about it if I hadn't spent so much anger on this story already. Um, It it was a pathetic non-interview. I think while on the one hand I would empathise with lots of people saying, no, I want to do this interview in my first language, I did think it was also very convenient for Rubiales that by doing the interview replying in Spanish, it meant that um, Piers and Piers Morgan couldn't do what he normally does with all his interviewees, which is interrupt them and talk over them. He can't do that when he's having to have everything translated back to him. So even more so, just allowing Rubiales to tell exactly the story he wanted to tell, exactly the story we've already heard from him a hundred times, repeated extremely repetitively um, for an hour and a half. It was, yeah, it was pointless um, not contributing to the the conversation around the situation at all, in my opinion.
1: Also worth having a read of Susie Rack's uh, column about it, because uh, which echo has been echoed on this podcast, but it's an excellent piece of writing. Um, and uh, yeah, go and do that. Uh, to uh, Tbilisi, for some reason, um, Norway beat Georgia in Norway. It's a key game in Scotland's group. Jaw would have guaranteed Scotland's qualification. Um, Lars Sivertsen volunteered a voice note. He was in Tbilisi. Uh, in georgia for reasons that really aren't clear and to which it gives no explanation
6: well hello everyone this is Lars sievelson here reporting from georgia i guess i've just watched norway beat georgia in a bar in tbilisi in the country of georgia of course the the game took place in oslo so i watched norway beat Georgia in Oslo, but I was in Georgia. This sounds like a scheduling mistake uh, Which it wasn't. It's just there's really never a bad time to go to Tbilisi. It's a tremendous place um, Norway are not <laughs> qualifying for the Euros We've kind of messed things up in our group, but this at least we won a game, which was nice Adling Holland scored a goal, which was nice. Martin Odegaard looked good. He had some moves that was nice. But I think the big takeaway from this, which I would, in all seriousness, want to bring to to Football Weekly listeners, aside from go to Tbilisi, because he's great, but uh, Antonio Nusa, I think, is a real player. And I'm not a little bit behind the curve here. Other people have said so before me, but he's a young 18-year-old Norwegian winger uh, playing in Belgium now. He made his sort of uh, proper, his first sort of proper game for the national team, this, and uh, two assists, looking really sharp, lively. Uh, like a like a good old-fashioned dribbly boy out wide there. So we can we, if we can add a dribbler to Martin Odegaard, to Howling Haaland, maybe we have a team, but, you know, still worry about that defence. But we won a game, which is exciting. Bye!
1: Thank you, Lars. Uh, also, uh, Germany beat France 2-1. Rudy Voller was in the dugout, and uh, he started Thomas Muller, which if he told me was what happened, Germany did in 2010, I would have Believed you. Muller um, puts uh, Germany one up. Sane scored another one. A Griezmann got one back. Uh, but that's a, a, a nice bounce after Hansi Flick. Uh, Shimmy says, where's the love for Japan? Back-to-back wins over Germany. Uh, looks strong against Turkey. Players in top teams all over Europe. Would anybody like to give some love to Japan? Johnny is doing some love mimes. Uh, <laughs> I don't have love mimes as a thing. Um, but like, it seemed nice. <laughs> it does, sound it does sound sinister. It does sound like something you could make a lot of money on the internet doing. Love mimes, doesn't it? But um anyway, uh, yeah, the MP was suspended after it was found that, that he had been performing love mimes uh, when he should have been uh, 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 carrying out important work in his constituency. Uh, Christopher says, uh, subject, Luxembourg. I hope you're happy. Cheers, Christopher. We dedicated some time on Monday's pod to Luxembourg's incredible run so far in qualifying. They then proceeded to lose 9-0 to Portugal that evening, um, uh, which follows us saying Georgia were quite good and they've since been gubbed seven something by spain and lost again uh carl says after snubbing paul watson for the live shows why are you snubbing him again delivering the biggest news in world football this week british virgin islands winning their first game for over a decade and their first competitive game since 2004 they beat turks and caicos islands 3-1 i think the manager of british virgin islands is someone that you wouldn't expect it to be um, but I can't remember who it is. Hang on, oh, no. Mel Gibson. <laughs> it is not. Oh no, it's not. It's, I mean, I don't know. It, I've never heard of them, so it's it's not. It's not Mel Gibson. But that, you know, that would have been a surprise. Chris Him Cowamia. and Danny Glover together. Is it Chris Kawamia? It's
4: Chris Kawamia.
1: It is that right? It is somebody. Oh, else, it is somebody. It That didn't come up. In my. Oh well, I I just googled British Virgin Islands manager. Um, I didn't get football. Uh, There you go, so I I didn't get... You probably got a wealth fund manager or something. Yeah, I did. Chris Kawamia is not running wealth funds in... uh, Well, he may be as well, but uh, who knows? But yes, Chris Kawamia, big win for him. Um, Frank Lampard reportedly on Leon's managerial shortlist after Laurent Blanc got sacked uh, with the bottom of Liga, so that'll be fun to follow. Uh, We mentioned the Sconthorpe-Buxton game getting called off in the 96th minute with Buxton winning 2-1. Uh, The National League have announced they will have to replay the fixture in full, (laughs) which is slightly harsh. And Saka says, do you think Southgate picking Henderson is based on astrologers advice? Did any of you see this story about Igor Stimatch, who is the India manager? And some really detailed reporting, I think, from the Indian Express that he's basically asked an astrologer, who he should pick on numerous occasions, giving like full details of their birth, you know, giving their date of birth and what position they play. And the astrologer going, nah, tomorrow's not a good day for him. And actually following the advice, which is absolutely sensational.
3: Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Barry? Uh, no, it's it's kind of a harks back to who was that France manager who was very into... Um, birth signs and signs of the zodiac and uh had lucky numbers and stuff well it, oh. it didn't end well for him that was anyway. that
1: no was that no Edmonds? he had lucky <laughs> numbers it dominic and,
3: oh yes dominic um i mean if it works for you uh <laughs> I, I see no harm in it seems odd but i think it didn't uh, work for dominic <laughs> Yeah, no, it, 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 his reign ended very, very badly, old Raymond. I used to, um,
1: I used to do the overnight show on BBC London. You'll remember two till six a.m. It's a fun gig, and one we used to have astrology for one for two hours on a. I can't remember which morning it was. I was incredibly tired, as you can imagine. And people would ring up and say, "Look, things aren't going so well." I remember a caller ringing saying, "Look, I'm in finance, but my career isn't going so great," and this. Oh, you know and, and said look i'm a sagittarius and the nice lady was saying well your node is in neptune and this might mean you know you're at the wrong company i was like this person listens to me between two and six every morning and i just said look i can't i don't want to lose nisters but maybe <laughs> and get some sleep and that might actually help your career in finance uh gary says uh if england are in fact a bechamel sauce as philippe suggested on the last pod they are, in fact, what legendary French chef Georges-Auguste Escoffier would classify as a mother sauce in terms of classical haute cuisine. This would suggest that England could actually evolve into any number of derivative sauces with adding some parmesan, gruyere cheese, and phil Foden, make them more dynamic sauce mornay, or perhaps Southgate should opt for butter, caramized onions, and James Madison for a rich, velvety soubise. Just some food for thought. Um, thank you so much. Fraser said, we're really running into the weeds now, last international break pod. Fraser says, I just had to rescue my dad out of an elevator in Sardinia. I was thinking to myself, has Barry ever been trapped in an elevator? And if so, what did he
3: do about it? Um, I haven't been, ever been trapped in an elevator uh, is the answer to that question. And if I was, (laughs) I presume I would uh, look up and invariably in movies, there's a Panel that you can remove and then climb out of the elevator and crawl through a an air vent, you know, in your vest and bare feet and then uh, blow things up. So that's probably what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Presumably, you'd be running away from
1: Thomas Bjorn holding a, you know, some kind of machine gun.
3: I think I, I do recall one member of staff at the Guardian quite an important news journalist who apparently got trapped in an elevator for quite some time and he didn't have his phone with him and he was needed for some very urgent deadline to to finish some article. And it, it looked like he just vanished off the face of the earth and, I think people kind of assumed he'd just gone to the pub or something, but no, he was stuck in an elevator.
5: I was thinking you could just press the call button before climbing up and blowing things up. <laughs> mm, yeah.
3: Well, <laughs> um, it's a sensible
1: idea, but you know, whichever, whatever floats you boat, but, um, uh, anyway uh that'll do- <laughs> i don't know i don't mean that do i really i mean definitely <laughs> do what nikki says really i don't i don't think anyone takes any takes uses this pod as advice but that would be the, the best bit of advice um uh, all right uh, that, <laughs> this is a self-help pod i don't think it is isn't it um uh, that'll do for today uh, thanks nikki thanks thanks johnny thanks for having me thanks barry thank you for the weekly is produced by joel grove our executive producer is danielle stevens we'll be back tomorrow